Hi, Force View. This morning, we're going to be continuing our Life Together series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting at verse 27, and we're going to be working our way to chapter 2, verse 3. But before we dive into our text this morning, I want to share with you an experience I had about four or five years ago. As many of you know, before I came to Forest View, I was the youth and young adults pastor at a church in Kitchener, Waterloo. And part of my responsibility with with that role was to give leadership to our weekly high school ministry night or program night. And so for that, what that involved, we'd have all sorts of high school students from the church gather together. There'd be some times of hangout and games and fun. There'd be worship, teaching. We'd break off into small groups. It was a lot of fun. But one of my favorite things to do on a Wednesday, it was on Wednesday nights, on Wednesday nights at our program, uh, was to kind of just hang back and just people watch. I loved watching our leaders interact with students, and even more so, I loved watching high school students interact with one another. Uh, it was very entertaining sometimes. It was amazing to see uh, student leaders who were just stepping up and, and caring for other people, and it was also just really fun to watch high school students flirt with one another. Well, it's one particular night that really stood out to me. Uh, There was a student who showed up, and then he had brought a friend with him. And this friend showed up, and I I greeted him, said hello, and he started to go around and talk to people. Now, the thing that was interesting about this guy that stood out to me, actually, it wasn't so much anything interesting specifically about him, but rather what was interesting was the way that many of the other boys in our group responded to him. Now, we'd had new people come to our group all the time. It happened on a weekly basis. But but the thing that was interesting about him was that the other boys all wanted to go up and greet him. Uh, And that was different. That usually didn't happen. In fact, most of them would go up and greet him with the ultimate sign of respect that one teenage boy can give to another. I'm, of course, talking about the head nod. Now, they, I saw just student after student, young man after young man, go up and say, Hello. Actually, they didn't even say hello. They just kind of did that, sup, and then kind of leave. I was like, why is this? Ha- What's going on here? Why is this happening? And, and I remember uh, hearing a couple of grade nine boys talking over the side. And so I go over, and, and as I'm walking over, I hear, them, I hear them kind of looking at that guy and talking. The one guy's like, do you think it's real? Are you sure it's real? And the guy's like, it's got to be real. There's no way it's a fake. It's got to be real. And so I go over, and I'm like, hey, guys, what's, what's going on? What are you talking about? And like, have you seen his T-shirt? And the truth was I'd seen it, like when he came in, when I met him, but it didn't stand out to me. It was just a plain white short sleeve t-shirt. There was nothing fancy about it. The, the only thing on it was there was a small rectangle on his chest that was red, and inside it, it had white, white letters that said the word supreme. And so I said to them, I said, yeah, what's, what's supreme all about? And like the look that they had on their face was just like, it was like kind of like jaw drop, like, oh my goodness, Seriously? You don't know what Supreme is. Like, it's only the most popular, hardest to get clothing brand that a person can get. And so I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like, anyway, so the night went on. At the end of the night, I was like, well, what is this Supreme business? Like, why is this such a significant thing? Why, is that why all these guys are going up and paying their respect to this guy? Because he had one of these t-shirts. And so I went on Google and I learned a little bit about Supreme. It comes out of New York City. It's a clothing brand. And what they essentially specialize, they don't, they're not known, they don't have a reputation for building or making really quality garments. They're not ethical, really. They don't make sure that it's made ethically. There, there isn't really anything significant about it beyond it is really expensive 
and it's really hard to get. Now, just a t-shirt with just the logo, we're talking like most of them are over $100 just to buy a plain white t-shirt with their small logo on the front. And most of their other clothing, they usually don't even really make that much. What they do is work with other companies and then they just slap their logo on it. So they might make, the other company might make a jacket and they're like, hey, let's do a collab. And they just put their logo on it. Or another company makes shoes and they're like, oh, we'll put our logo on it. And so that's essentially how they work. And then what they do is aside from just charging a significant amount of money for their stuff, when they release their stuff, they release it in very limited quantities. So, uh, and it's very difficult to get. Most stores don't carry it. And so you have, most of it has to come from their flagship stores. And there's only a few of those in the United States. And so for them, what they would do is, uh, what people, fans of the clothing would do is they actually line up in front of the store, sometimes days, two, three days before the release happens. So they can make sure that they go in and buy it. And then they will go and they will take it and they'll bring it home. And many of them, what they will do is some of them, they will buy two of those things and they will sell them online and they will mark up the price. So this $100 plus t-shirt will sometimes go for two, three, sometimes four times the amount that they bought it for in the store. Now, Supreme realizes what's important about what they're doing. They realize that the people that are buying their stuff, mostly teenage boys, they're buying it because of their logo. And so they've actually started to release other products and put just slapping their logo on it and charging ridiculous amounts of money for it. In fact, actually, it was about four years ago, they released a Supreme brick. And it is literally just a brick that costs over $100. And it just has their logo on the front. You, you can imagine, and, and actually you can still get it today. You can find them online. I did a quick Google search and it looks like they're going for about $250 Canadian. So if you need to buy a Supreme brick, you can find one now. Uh, now, I, I love having these, I love like looking at this stuff. It's interesting, it's kind of funny and, and there's some interesting videos and stuff online. You can learn more about the clothing company uh, and just their strategy. But I can't help but think about these guys who are shelling out ridiculous amounts of money to fill up their closet with this particular brand. I mean, we're talking, if you're buying just a couple different shirts, that's a lot of money. And, and I can't help but think, like right now, Supreme is, or at least it was four years ago, was very popular. Teenagers loved it. You wore it. You get the respect of all the boys in the room. But I can't help but anticipate that that's going to change at some point. And eventually these guys are going to be stuck with these closets with these expensive shirts and they're going to be able to mentally see the price tags on each one of these things. And hey, if they have a supreme brick and to realize all that they spent on it and they're going to be asking themselves, you know, this closet full of these shirts, were they really worth it? Did, did they live up to the price, to the cost? Did they, did they live up to that? I mean, we've all had those experiences, right? There, maybe it's a product, something you bought. Maybe it was an appliance. Maybe it was a vacation and you thought it was going to be amazing and you realize it actually wasn't worth it. It didn't live up to all that it could have been or what it promised. Maybe it's something you've invested your time and your energy into. It's something you've sacrificed for and you're just like, ah, that wasn't really worth it. Well, this morning, I want to look at a passage and, and really what Paul is getting at as he re, or as he writes this to the Philippian church is he's talking about living up to your price tag. Uh, here's let's just read the first half of verse 27, the Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. The apostle Paul writes this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner 
worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as we've talked about earlier weeks, uh, Paul has completely reoriented his life, built his life on this thing we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. This is about what God has done through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, and the new life that is possible for anyone who commits their life in faith to following him. And so Paul, as he's, he's proclaiming this good news about what God uh, has done, he is talking about this thing that he just sees this amazing thing that has happened and that all people are invited to be a part of. I mean, this is just the most incredible thing in the world. And so Paul's challenge to the Philippian community, he's saying, I want you to behave in such a way that reflects or that lives up to this amazing thing that Jesus has done and this amazing kingdom that Jesus is the king of. So, so for Paul, I mean, he sees that, that each one of us, every person who has committed themselves, committed themselves to Jesus in faith, they have been invited into this amazing thing. And there is a whole lot that we are invited to live up to. And if we are not careful, we can miss out on it. We can waste away our lives on things that don't really matter. Now, now the thing that is interesting about what Paul says here, the words, uh, the Greek, uh, conduct yourselves, or that we translate as conduct yourselves in the New International Version. Uh, this is an interesting term because for Paul, usually if he's in giving instructions about moral behavior, how people are supposed to act, he, he uses a term that we would usually translate as walk. But here Paul isn't using an individual term to, to, to give instructions to. He's actually giving, a, like we call it like a communal calling. He's saying this is about you guys together. This is not about what you need to do as a bunch of individuals. This is about a calling that you guys need to do together, that all of you together in your shared life together need to do. Now, uh, for us, we live in a pretty hyper-individualistic kind of world, right? And, and actually, up until recently, many of us could live with this illusion that we didn't really need other people in our lives. And, and actually, the thing that's been so fascinating with COVID is that it actually has exposed and I think brought to the surface just how interconnected our lives are. I mean, think through essential workers and, and the list of people that we realize, oh my goodness, how important and significant their jobs are. I mean, the people, every time I go through the checkout line at the grocery store, I'm just in awe and humbled at the people who are serving and doing this important work. I mean, my life, my family's life, my survival is dependent upon them. Our lives are interconnected. And we've even seen, often we will think in our lives that our actions, our choices, the way that we live has little impact on other people. And then COVID happened and suddenly we realize that what we touch actually has literal consequences. Our, our interaction with other people can, can either increase or reduce the spread of this virus, that even the air that we breathe is shared and we are impacting each other's lives in significant ways. Paul is pointing out to them, he's saying, hey, you guys together, your lives are shared and interconnected in deep ways. And so this is a challenge and these are instructions for you to walk through together as a community. Now, let me continue the passage, continuing on with verse chapter, tw or chapter one, verse 27. 
This is Paul writing. Then, whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Now it's interesting. Paul gives these instructions to this community. And for many of us, we would think it'd be about all the things you are supposed to avoid or not do or not, like, all, like the list, the do, do and do not list. But, but Paul's challenge, his ultimate statement is, is he's saying, hey, I want you to be a community that practices unity. I want that to be what is a defining trait about who you are. You need to make unity a priority. It's almost like Paul is saying, our brand is unity. Look through some of the words that he says here. I just, just go through it. He emphasizes one. I, just, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And later on, he begins to share about what they share together. And he talks about them sharing the same struggle. Essentially, Paul is saying, we are all in, in this together. And the important thing that I want the world to see in you is that you are unified. This morning, I just simply want to give three, what I see as significant points about what it means for us as a church, as the body of Christ, to practice unity and to be a community where our brand is unity. Now, uh, let me also just say this. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. This is just three things that, that stood out to me as I read through this text. So I wanted to share them with you this morning. And so let me start here. Number one, unity and humility go hand and hand. You can't have unity without humility, and you can't have humility without some sort of unity. I think those two things are so important in our shared life together. Uh, Let me just read to you this passage uh, as Paul continues on in chapter two. Here's what he writes. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Again, emphasis on unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, do the opposite. And here's what the opposite is. In humility, value others above yourselves. Humility is the choice about how we choose to see others, how we choose to treat others, how we choose to think about others in relationship to our self. I remember uh, a number of years ago uh, when I was in my undergrad program at Laurier, I was a music student. I studied vocal music. And one of the things that I had to do as a vocal student is I had to be a part of a choir. 
And uh, it was a, actually a really great experience. I love being a part of it. And, and the choir was made up of predominantly vocal students. Now, most of us had experience singing in choirs. It was something we've done for big chunks of our lives. But I remember this one particular woman who was a part of, who was in actually in the same year as I was. She was a singer, incredibly talented opera singer. But I don't think she'd ever actually sang in a choir before. And I remember being in a rehearsal, and as our choir is singing, uh, singing together, she is just belting it out. It's like she's just doing a solo in front of the auditorium, just, just loud, and she's rolling her R's, and just, like, just over the top. And I remember kind of just all of us there sitting like, seriously, what is up with this woman? And I remember the, the conductor, she ultimately, she got really frustrated. She just like, kind of stop, stop. And she just, just went to her and she, she just said, listen, you're not singing a solo right now. You're singing in a choir. And so we need you to sing with us, not above us. Uh, ultimately, if you want to have an attitude of humility, it is about how can I make others better around me and not how can I elevate myself so that other people see me and I look better. I mean, and this is true in music, if you played in a band or, or, or really anything. I mean, if you've been on a sports team, how many of us have been on or seen a sports team where there is a player and maybe they're incredibly talented and gifted at what they do, but when they go out there, it's all about the stats. It's all about them looking good. It's all about them getting the praise and the glory. And I would argue that the, the athletes who just, who, who are the ones that really go down in the history books are not simply the ones with the most talent but rather are the ones who can go out there and dominate, but at the same time, they elevate their other teammates. They make everyone else better too because they realize that their success is not about how people see them, but is rather how they see the team. It's about being in it for others. Uh, I remember in my first year of university, I was a part, actually well, throughout my time in, in my undergrad, uh, there was a Bible study that I was a part of. And so I started going to it in my first year, and it was being led by people who were in their third and fourth year. And uh, it was such a meaningful experience for me. It helped me grow in my faith and in really significant ways as these third and fourth year students began to pour into my life and the lives of the other first and second year students who were a part of the group. Now, a couple of years went by, and I remember I was going into my third, or I was in my third year, and, uh, and a lot of those students who had really blessed me and poured into my life and the other people in the group, they had graduated and moved on. And uh, new people were coming in, new first years, and were joining up and connecting in with the Bible study. And, and I remember having this conversation because I was getting kind of frustrated because a bunch of those people who we'd, we'd come up together through the Bible study, they were now in their third, fourth year, they started leaving and not coming to the group anymore. And I remember having a conversation with one of them and saying, hey, why aren't you guys coming anymore? Where have you guys been? And th they said, uh, this was their wording, they just said, it's not really doing it for me anymore. I'm not really getting anything out of it. And I couldn't help but feel really sad and torn up inside as I heard them say that. Uh, because all I could think was how meaningful and significant this, this ministry had had on my life and on, on their life and, on, and, and just the impact that it had had and, and how this was now our opportunity to continue that on. It was our chance to give back and to pour into the next people who are going to come up. And so they had this attitude of it's all about me, about what I get out of it. What's it doing for me? 
I think that this is something that's so important for all of us as it comes to being a part of the family of God, about being a part of the body of Christ, about being a church together. It's so easy to fall in this. It's all about me. And the challenge, the thing that really drives unity is that we have to be, we want to be practicing humility, which means it flows out of a place of not just simply what's in it for me, what am I getting out of it, but what am I bringing to help other people grow and develop? Because it's not just about me. It's ultimately about God and it's about us. Unity and humility go hand in hand. All right, number two. Unity requires intentionality. Uh, Let me just break down exactly what that means. I mean, there are relationships that happen in our lives, people that we connect with, that we want to spend time with, that we would say we were unified with. We probably wouldn't use that word. Uh, And it just naturally happens. And it's usually because we share common interests or maybe our lives are very similar. Uh, Maybe you're, you're both single and you just, you connect on that or both starting relationships or both married or whatever it is, both have kids in the same stage, whatever stage of life or place that your life is in. And it's just easy to connect with people who are like you. But Paul isn't interested in just them connecting with people and creating unity when it's just natural and just feels like, ah, it just happens. I mean, look at the words he uses. He, he moves to talking in imperatives, commands. He, he, he gives instructions. Just reading through that whole passage again, just look at all the actions, action words he identifies. Look at the things he says. Conduct yourselves, striving together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Value others. I mean, Paul is driving home that this is something that is going to take intentionality. It is not something that is just going to happen by itself. And so a question that we need to ask ourselves, and I'd say as individuals and even more so as a community, is are we only spending time with, are we only going deep with, are we only helping other people to grow who look like us, who read the same books as us, who are in the same stage of life as us, who vote like us? I mean, where are there, where's their diversity being expressed in your interaction with other believers? Who are you pouring into or allowing to pour into your life? Who are you helping to grow? Who are you practicing unity with? And do they all look exactly like you? Unity requires intentionality. And that doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just means it takes work. All right, final point is this. Unity enables us to become something we would never be on our own. Uh, I uh, was recently listening to an interview with a pastor, theologian, professor. His name is Will Willimon. He is a retired bishop for the United Methodist Church in the United States. He's also a professor at uh, Duke Divinity School. Brilliant guy, written some incredible books, and has just this beautiful heart for the church. And... uh, if you're familiar with the United Methodist denomination in the United States, they have been navigating a vicious split. And so essentially what has happened, to give you a quick summary, uh, there's one group that essentially says, you guys are liberals and you don't take the Bible seriously enough anymore, and we don't know if we can still be with you. And so they're pulling away, and then there's kind of this other side that's saying, you guys are all closed-minded, get out of here, leave, don't let the door hit you on your way out okay so this is like there is just this huge split happening within this denomination and will willimon he he loves the denomination that he's a part of he's seen the amazing things that god has done through it 
and his heart is just being ripped apart as he's seeing this, this, this split happen. Um, and he's trying to call them and invite them to unity and be this voice to say, hey, we can work. We need to stay together in the midst of our differences. And uh, I was, this interview I was listening to, this is what uh, Will Willimon shared, an interaction he had with one of the leading voices in the we need to go group. Uh, and here's what that guy said. Essentially, he came up to them after a big meeting that they had had, and he says this, for years, you've played fast and loose with scripture. For years, people couldn't tell if you were a Bible-believing conservative or merely a progressive. And now it's catching up with y'all. And they're Southern, so they say they're y'alls. And so this is what this guy says, angry, uh, very frustrated with Will Willimon, basically saying, you've tried to play both sides. No one knew where you really stood, but now we're really seeing it. And, And we can't be a part of this anymore. We are out of here. And Will Wilmon, this is the response that he shared, and I, I found this really significant. Here's how Will responded. He said, for years, or sorry, he says this, Will Wilmon's response. The sad thing is, you're right about so much of what you said to me, but none of my open-minded progressive buddies will say that to me. Who's going to say that to me if you walk? Who's going to say that to me if I lose you? So essentially, Will says this. He says, yeah, I, this, I, you're right. I probably identify most with this group that you want to leave behind. I'm, I'm with these guys here if you were to go and lay out everything that we think. But he says, if you leave, we all think the same and we have the exact same blind spots. And I need people like you, people who have different views and different convictions who are gonna call me out and challenge me and speak the truth to me, even when it's hard and difficult. For Will Willimon, he's saying, in order for us to be the church, it doesn't mean that we just ignore our differences. It means that we actually have to bond together and work through them together. That that we need that diversity and that God works in powerful ways through that diversity to make each one of us more like Jesus. Because at the end, in the end, that is the heart of what it is all about. I can't help but think that maybe the greatest gift the church can give to the world today, uh, in a world that is, is so aggressively divided, that where there is so much animosity towards one another, that maybe the greatest gift that we could give to the world in this particular moment is to be able to practice unity in the midst of our extreme differences. I mean, maybe, maybe the most profound witness, the sign of, of what God has done in our lives is to show the world how we can love each other and to, to live in close relationship with each other even when we have different convictions about the way that we live this Jesus life out. I mean, it is so easy to unite people around a common enemy. I mean, you can rally people to that, and it's amazing what people overlook as we, as we demonize and we create enemies. But, but can you ama- imagine if what the church was actually doing was, was modeling for the world a community that really loves each other, even though sometimes it requires incredible risk? and is incredibly difficult. 
I believe that as a church, as we confront and not shy away from our differences, but, but in love, commit to one another and commit to work through those differences and to hold those differences and to live with that tension, that, that we actually take steps closer to reflecting what this unified body of Christ is supposed to look like. And, and as we do that, people will catch a glimpse of what Jesus is really like. 